0: I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Aphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All of these were with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their known language, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. trying to figure out if I'm going to preach with my reading glasses without them, because if I have them on, I can't really look at you well in the eye, but with them... I may miss something in my notes here, so I'm going to go without them. I'd rather see you and interact with you. It's so wonderful to have everybody here this morning. Well, I can tell you, as a pastor, there are few things more exciting than to see a new believer in Christ come and say, I want to be involved in some way. There's an excitement, isn't there? They're, they've come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, they, they, there's an exuberance in, in telling anyone who will ever listen to them, Jesus is their Savior. There, there's that understanding of, of excitedness in that He's the Lord and Savior of everyone, and I've got to tell them about this wonderful thing that I've discovered. And there's an eagerness to do it anywhere and everywhere. Uh, they're willing to do whatever is asked of them. I think I've told you before, when I first came to Christ, I remember witnessing to people in the bank lineup at the CIBC. And it was just a natural thing for me. Again, I did door-to-door visitation after less than a year of knowing the Lord as my Savior. You know, going knocking on the door, Hi, I'm so-and-so from this church, and I want to tell you about Jesus. So it's wonderful when those people come. You know, and over the years, we can feel that excitement time and time again. Whenever we feel that God has given us a particular vision or a a particular ministry, a way that we're to serve the people of God. And so we feel that fresh excitement again, don't we? And we're eager to do whatever God has called us to do. When we first went to Chile, we we felt that God's calling. We just packed up and, and moved and we felt that same way again when we got called to Texas in my first church there. We felt the same way when we came back to Canada and we started working amongst the Chinese community here. There was an excitement and a willingness to do whatever God wanted. In fact, I think one of the strengths of our families and one of the weaknesses of our family is that we have been willing to do anything and everything for the Lord, whatever we feel He's calling us to do. It's a strength, obviously, in that we can just pick up our bags and go not worry about the consequences and what it might mean. However, it's also weakness sometimes because in our eagerness, we don't necessarily do all the preparation up front that we should to make sure that we are fully on the page with the Lord. So sometimes there are spiritual things that should have been there in place before we went, before we did something that weren't. Now, As people who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we know that we are to be followers of Christ, right? We're to follow him in the sense that we are to be more like him, but we're also to to be followers when we know that Christ has called us to do something, we're willing to serve. We're willing to lay aside the worldly things and, and follow him. That's what being a follower of Christ is. As people who serve the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to experience these times again and again and again in our ministry. Sometimes it may be starting in a new church. Sometimes it'll be getting married and knowing that God has a special purpose for you as a couple in the kingdom of God. Perhaps it's simply having to change jobs and going to another city or another country it can be an experience that that is really life-changing and it it could be the start of of something new in the church as a whole so as a church we could experience it in that we have a fresh vision for what god wants us to do we could have a, a fresh vision in planting a new church somewhere so these experiences can come back time and time again and our willingness to do whatever the lord calls Here's the thing, though. It's not enough to simply be willing and eager to do whatever we feel God's calling us to do. We must have first things first. We must set our priorities. We must understand there are are things that we need to do before we set out and do whatever God has called us to do. And we're going to see that this morning in these scriptures We can be pumped up about what God's calling us to do and and run off and do it, but the problem is we're probably not going to do it for His glory in the way He wants, and it's going to be very man-centered. We can be eager to strike out, but without putting those first things first, without making sure our attitudes and uh, all the preparation is there, we could fail miserably. That's why the first steps are so important. I think I shared with you, when I first came to Christ, I, I was so excited for the Lord. My first pastor in Exeter, he said years later when I met him, I, I didn't know if you were a comet and a shooting star, and, and you know, you'd burn brightly for a couple months and then fizzle out. You, we had to watch and wait, but in that time, in those months with him, they made sure that there were certain principles in place, and I think You know, praise the Lord for that, because that's what helped uh, in the long run in terms of ministry. Now, with the rollback of all of the social distancing restrictions, I think we need to consider as a church that God has wiped the slate clean for us in terms of ministry. We're starting afresh here. How we do ministry in the foreseeable future will be different. Eventually, we may get back into a pre-COVID routine, but for the next couple years, I imagine things will be very different. So we should contemplate what God has called us to do and make sure that we put first things first. God has blessed us. He's given us a wonderful role to play in the plan of redemption that he has. But our priorities must be right. They they must be put in place before we participate, before we can be useful to him. And so if this slate is clean, then we need to say, well, what is ahead for us? And how do we actually do what God has called us to do? What are those first priorities? Again, we can be willing and we can be eager, but that's not enough. We must have those first steps down. Now, I don't know if you've been watching uh, the Facebook post that Pastor Werner has been showing. It's pouring that foundation of the new church up there, right? It's very much like that. You could slap up walls, but if your foundation is not solid, the house will collapse. So having those priorities down are important. And what we're going to see this morning in these verses are three things. The the priorities are that we need to have first and foremost an obedience to what God is calling us in the manner God is calling us, in the way God is calling us. So his desires, his uh, uh, way of doing things must be ours. Then we're going to see that we must have an earnest commitment and a devotion to corporate prayer. And that may be our hardest challenge this morning as a church to think about. And the last one is that we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. So, this morning, in these verses, chapter 1, 12 through 26, we get the first snapshot, the earliest picture of the church after Jesus has gone up to glory. You know, have you seen those pictures in the, uh, the old ones that are sepia, which is kind of a yellowy green color? You ever seen those? They're really old. And this is the first one that we have. Now, throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see time and time again different snapshots of the church as it progresses forward, as it changes uh, and it it moves ahead and the kingdom of God builds. But this is the first picture that we open up in our family album as the people of God here this morning, these verses. It starts here, so it's important to understand what's going on. It's important to understand this is a first snapshot for a couple reasons, because we're going to see in these verses there are some transitions from the way things were done in the Old Testament to the way things are supposed to be done now in the New Testament in the people of God. It's going to be important because we're going to see that Jesus, remember, has just spent 40 days with them in teaching them, talking with them, uh, eating with them. And, and so we have a picture of the people of God immediately after the, 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 the uh, Lord Jesus Christ goes unto glory. That's important. You think how excited we were when we came to Jesus Christ. Think about them. There they were. They had actually talked and ate with the risen Savior. Now, their context was unique in terms of redemptive history. We, we can't uh, pretend to try to duplicate that, but there are some very important principles in these verses that, that we know must apply to us. And so we need to earnestly come this morning and say, okay, I, un- I understand this. Now, what does it mean for us as a church? Now, the first thing we need to see is that there was this great exuberance and expectation. But this expectation was tempered by obedience. Again, you remember how excited we were when we came to faith? They have just walked with Jesus and talked with him, listened to him, and they've stood there and watched him go into glory. I can't imagine how excited they must have been about wanting to go out and tell everyone about the great news. This is Lord Jesus Christ. His death has paid the penalty for your sins. He is the living Savior, the the coming Messiah, the Christ. And if that weren't enough, they saw him visibly go into heaven. I, I can't imagine that. I love him just knowing he's gone to heaven. I take it by faith. But having seen that glorified, resurrected body taken up, I just can't imagine the excitement that they must have had. I can't imagine that any of them didn't want to go out immediately and tell everyone that they could find in the marketplace uh, and the streets. The long-awaited king of Israel had come, the Messiah, the resurrected Christ. They had seen and, and knew this because there was all of these supernatural events that verified it miracles that could never have happened and never will again because they were there specifically to verify the reality of who Jesus Christ was in his ministry. So it's been about 10 days since Christ has gone into glory and we start here in verse 12. And we read that there's about 120 of them all together, including the apostles, the family of, of Jesus, and they've gone back and forth to the Mount of Olives. Why? Why would it even say that? Well think of it this way. Where did Jesus do most of his important teaching that we have recorded in the New Testament? The Mount of Olives. Where was the open tomb? At the foot of the Mount of Olives. Where had they seen him go up into glory? In the Mount of Olives. So they've been told to go back and wait for the Holy Spirit. But every day they keep going back to the Mount of Olives with this great expectation. Our Savior has gone into heaven and the Holy Spirit is coming again. According to Zechariah 14, one day the Lord Yahweh will stand on this mountain and will split it. There's this wonderful expectation. All the prophecies of the Old Testament are coming true in Jesus Christ. So they keep going back to the Mount of Olives and they're waiting expectantly for the Holy Spirit to come man, how easy would it have been to jump the gun and say, well, yeah, the, the Holy Spirit's coming. I, I can be empowered, but I just want to share with people what's happened to me. I just want to tell people who Jesus what is." Uh, and, and I don't think they fully understand or understood what it meant to be empowered by the Spirit. So this exuberance would have been there. But here's the thing. They knew that God had a plan. God had said, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Don't go out and do everything I've called you to do. You're going to be witnesses of salvation to all of the nations, but wait. And so what do we read they do? They did exactly that. They went back to Jerusalem and waited. Despite what must have been an, an uncontrollable urge to go out and tell everybody of this wonderful, joyous salvation in Jesus Christ, their exuberance was tempered by obedience. They understood that God had a timetable, they understood that God had a means of getting this done through the Holy Spirit. They understood that God was sovereign, and so they waited. And while they waited, this great expectation, this great excitement was welling up inside of them so that when they would be sent out, it would, it would be like a, a, a pot bottle and you, you shake it and it just explodes. But that's exactly what they did. They had this wonderful exuberance, excitement, but it was tempered by their obedience to the commands of Jesus. Now, we also see in these opening verses that their expectation produced expectant prayer when they were followed jesus in in his instructions to go back again return to jerusalem they specifically went back to where the upper room to wait for the spirit and we're told what did they do they devoted themselves to prayer in fact we're going to see that they were of one mind in prayer it seems that while they waited on god the one thing that they knew that they could do the one thing that they knew that they should do was commit themselves to prayer the one thing that marked them while they waited in this anticipation was prayer a sincere prayer a devotional prayer a prayer that was ongoing all day long diligently earnestly spilling their hearts out waiting for god to fulfill his promises a a prayer that persistently waited upon him day after day until his perfect timing happened they had a mission to preach the gospel to the nations and they understood that they were going to receive the authority and power from god to accomplish that task and yet they waited and they prayed and they prayed they they probably had a broad understanding of what that meant but they certainly didn't understand the particulars of the details of of what the calling would be so they prayed for god's direction they prayed for god's timing they prayed for god's empowerment this is how they prepared themselves for the task that God had given them. It was a devotion and a commitment to prayer. Again, it's a commitment and devotion that it's marked by what? They were of one accord one heart and one mind they were united on this there was not one of them of the 120 said well there's maybe something better i can do this this hour maybe i'll go home and 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 make sure supper's on the table maybe i'll make sure i'll I'll go to the agora the market and and make sure that I, i sell something so that we have some they were of one mind this is the most important thing they could do so it marked them as a people as a family This was earnest, persistent prayer with one mind. It's hard to wait on God, isn't it? Especially when we we feel that God has given us this wonderful vision of what He wants us to do. It could be a missionary. It could be a a missionary within our, our building complex. We have a clear understanding of God's calling, and yet we have to wait. What are we going to do in that time? We need to pray for Sean and I from the moment we first shared with our church that we felt called to be missionaries to the time we actually got to the field it was eight years it was eight years of expectant faith that God was going to use us it was eight years of learning obedience to his timetable and that there was all of these things that had to happen before we could ever get there And it was eight years of earnest, expectant prayer that kept us on that track. When we believe with all our heart that God's opening doors for us, whether it's moving to a new job in another city, whether again it's getting married so that we can serve the kingdom of God better, it's hard not to jump the gun and to do things because we're excited. You know, what more could God want? I'm ready, I'm willing, let's do it. But God says, wait, pray. Know what I want, how I want it, when I want it. And here's the thing, if we want to honor God, we must learn to be obedient to His direction, not our desires. So from the opening verses here, we see the example of the early church They believed expectantly that God had a special role for them in his plan of redemption. What a wonderful thing. And that expectation brought together two things. It brought brought together an obedience to Jesus' instructions to go back and wait for the Spirit. And it, it issued forth in a fervent devotion to corporate prayer. Now, both of these things are fundamental in, in, in defining their unity at this point. It, they were of one heart and one mind. As we contemplate the, the lifting of COVID, the lifting of these restrictions, <coughs> we really need to contemplate, as a church, what this means for us. If the slate has been clean and we are looking ahead at what God is calling us to do, there are some important questions that we need to ask ourselves. Not long from now, a couple weeks, a couple months, we could be all coming back to this building without masks, and and our, our greatest temptation would be to just start picking up all our ministries again right where we left off, doing the same old, same old, because it worked then. Well, the question is, what is God calling us to do? So here's the first question in the light of everything we've looked at so far that we need to ask ourselves. Do we expectantly believe that Jesus has a role to play for us in His plan of salvation? Now that sounds like a ludicrous question. The church doesn't have a role there are probably many people who come to this church maybe in a few this morning they're sitting there think yeah the church has a role in the salvation of the nations but i'm not necessarily that person i don't necessarily have to think about my role in terms of god's plan of salvation with my neighbors with my family with with refugees Again, it sounds strange, but the reality is that there may be some of us who have not bought into the reality that if I am part of this church and this is the church's mandate, then I am part of that mandate. I am part of this family. Its it's call is my call. We must be of the same mind. So has the Lord called Chinese Gospel Church, Toronto English, to a mandate to proclaim the good news of salvation to the nations. If he has, what does this mean for us as we look ahead? How has God called us to be messengers of salvation? What does it mean for us here, having a physical building down on Dundas West? What does it mean for where God has placed you in each of the communities where you live, where you work, where you go to school? What does it mean for us to reach the nations, to go you know, to every culture in this world? If we believe and earnestly believe that we have a mission, and that mission is, as we define it, to seize every opportunity to proclaim the gospel, how are we going to serve and to minister with that as its center? Does that make sense? All of the other things may be nice, may be good, but if God has called us to a unique role in plan of redemption, where we are located as, as a church, then everything else must revolve around that calling. And if we call, if we say our calling is to seize every opportunity for Christ, to see every opportunity to share the gospel, how does that work in to, to the very bone and marrow of who we are? So that's the first and primary question. Because if God has not given us a mission as a church, what are we doing here? <laughs> Why are we meeting together? But we believe he does. He has, right? So again, looking at this clear slate ahead of us, what does it mean that God has a unique role for us as a church and that I am part of this family and so I am to be involved in this? The second question that we need to ask ourselves is what is God's timetable or agenda for us? Not is what our timetable, what, is, what have we done in the past and let's duplicate this. But again, the greatest challenge we have is often uh, let's simply do things the way we've done before, or let's just grab the bull by the horns and run with it. The problem is, God rarely reveals his ways and ex- his desires, his will, in explicit ways. He, we're talking about the sovereignty of God in his providential outworking of all things, and he keeps that pretty close to himself. Very rarely will we ever have an understanding of the deep wisdom and and will of God providential cares are hidden from us so our natural desire is what to look at the situation around us to calculate to figure out according to our understanding our wisdom our interpretation of things and then say what is the greatest benefit for from our perspective well sometimes that needs to be done but we should ask ourselves, what does God want? Because God rarely works along straight lines, does he? His ways are mysterious. How he counts spiritual wins and advances in the kingdom of God are often at right angles to how we think things should be working out. Again, our our biggest challenge is often that we're so eager to engage and to do things, to believe that God has given us a vision to start something new, that, that we just do it under our own power, our own force, without taking time to know what God desires specifically of us. To take the time to wait on God, to wait for His empowerment, to wait for His timing, so that we do it His way. Now what that means for us as a church is that we can be eager to get back together and start all of these ministries back up after COVID, and we can actually, in doing that, fail to do what God is calling us to do because we're doing it according to our own understanding or the way we've always done things. So we're being presumptuous and presuming that if we do it a certain way like we did before, God will bless us in hindsight. But I would rather look ahead and say, Lord, we're going to actually wait on you for a while. We want to humble ourselves and ask and wait for your direction and then start building again. We may rightly even understand what God wants us to do as a church, but if we end up doing it our way on our timetable, then we end up glorifying ourselves and not Christ. The third question we need to ask ourselves, and again, this may be the most penetrating one for us to think about this morning, what is the role of prayer in our life as a church? The example of the local church is that they were of one heart and one mind, and they came together daily for large, time, uh, 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 for large periods of time, and they prayed. Now, I, I'm sure if we did a, a survey or a poll this morning and said, how important do you think prayer is in the life of a Christian, We've, on a scale of one to five, we'd probably end up with a four. I think most of us understand that prayer is important. But how does it work out? We need to ask ourselves, if I believe it's important, how important is it in my daily life? How much time do I devote to it? And even more specifically, and this is where it might hurt a little bit, how much time do we commit as a body to corporate prayer? Because, again, there's two aspects that we see here in this example. They prayed with one mind, and they were all devoted to prayer. There was not one of them who said yes that's important but i'm not going to go there's other things that are are stealing my time in the light of god's call for them to be messengers of salvation to the nations the one thing that they committed themselves to do was to pray and they were devoted to prayer they prayed consistently they prayed fervently they prayed expectantly they prayed together with one mind they understood that the task ahead of them wasn't a task that was just given to individuals but the individuals were part of the the one calling of the church and that they they could only accomplish it under God's power they understood their frailty Uh, they understood their lack of wisdom their lack of understanding of of God's uh, plans but here's the thing They believed with all of their heart that God would guide them and would empower them when the time came. And so they prayed. They believed that God would lead. And so they prayed as one. Expectant prayer can only come from expectant faith. And if we don't expect God to do much with us, we're not going to pray much. We're not going to call unto the Lord and say, we can't do it. We want to do it your way so that you receive the glory and not us. So as we think of preparing ourselves for what God has ahead, as as we come back to a post-COVID reality, We need to commit ourselves to corporate prayer. Prayer that says, Lord, we urgently desire to know what you want of us. Prayer that says, we want to be empowered by you to do only what you call us to do. Prayer that says, we want to be obedient to what you have called us to do. Prayer that says, We want to see fruit, not for us, but for you. And and to that end, I want to encourage you. We don't pray as a church corporately enough. It's not just us. It's a symptom of the North American church, period. (laughs) Prayer meetings used to be one of, I remember when I was first saved on a Wednesday night, I would go and there would be 50 people in the church for a short study and a corporate time in prayer. It's been canceled in that church. We don't have Sunday evening services. We have one service in the morning. Even then, we kind of cut it short so that there are only certain things involved. Uh, And everything else has kind of been pushed to the side. And corporate prayer is one of those things that is lacking to our spiritual detriment. If we want to be useful in God's hands, we need to understand that we have a calling as a church. And then as a church, we need to humble ourselves before God and ask Him, for his guidance and his empowerment. We have two opportunities for corporate prayer now, one on a Thursday night and another on a Sunday morning, but we will make more if you desire according to your timetable, so please let us know. In verses 15 through 26, we have the story or the narrative of how Matthias is chosen to replace Judas as the twelfth apostle. Now, the account starts with Peter, who has, during this time of waiting on the Lord, been reading the Old Testament, and specifically comes to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and the Holy Spirit reveals to him that Judas's call to be part of the apostolic band to be with Jesus, to see all these miracles and yet not believe, his betrayal of Christ, even the way he dies, that gruesome death, this was all predicted by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David hundreds of years before. And then he says, you know, according to those same scriptures, the, the ones that, that predict that the Messiah would be betrayed now say that we need to replace Judas, someone else, to become an apostle. That's why we read in verses 21 through 26 how the apostles are casting lots between Matthias and, and Joseph, and God is choosing which of the two. Now, before we get too far, there, there is kind of a, a, a cursory issue we have to get out of the way here. We need to address this. There are some churches today that would say we can have apostles i'm an apostle that would say the office or role of apostle that existed at the time of christ it, it it didn't cease and they would say well look at look at paul if we look strictly first of all at the verses here 21 through 26 there are a couple things that contradict this teaching that would say no the role has ended with the, with the apostles. The first is Peter's own interpretation of the Psalms. It, it makes clear that Judas's replacement is a one-time event, that the one who betrays the Messiah is the one who's going to be replaced. It, it doesn't say that this is going to go on in perpetuity. In fact, we know that within a couple months, uh, the first apostle dies. He's martyred, but he's not replaced. So this is not something that is supposed to be done every time an apostle dies, even by Peter's own interpretation of the scriptures. But beyond that, we're actually given some very strict requirements as to who could even be called or considered an apostle. And there's three of them here. First of all, he had to be chosen by Jesus Christ himself. Secondly, He had to be there from the very beginning of the ministry, from the time John the Baptist was there. He had to have been there that three years of ministry with Jesus Christ. And thirdly, most importantly, he had to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, again, as as we're going to see, there is one exception, and that is the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see that his testimony, how he came to faith in Christ, is repeated three times in the book of Acts. And it's done so specifically to establish his credentials as an apostle outside of this one case. But here's the reality. Apostles do not exist today. There is no one who can say that they were with Christ for three years, were taught by him, and they saw him resurrected. (coughs) despite whatever argument they might want to give us today. Now, here's here's the important thing that we really need to get from from these verses, is that this is the first and the only time in the New Testament where the people of God cast lots. They're, They're looking for God's direction. They're looking for the Holy Spirit to help them understand their situation, their context, Uh, The Holy Spirit has just revealed that someone is to replace Judas, and so they're now seeking divine help in what that means. In the Old Testament, God had permitted the casting of lots as a way of knowing His will. If there was something that the people needed to understand that was hidden from them, God said, I can reveal that to you through the casting of lots. Now, what would they do is they take sticks of different lengths or stones or even a die or dice and and then they would ask a simple question could it be a or b and then they throw them and then they would say out of the out of the outcome of that this is a or b (laughs) it was a common practice in the ancient days we see it several times in the bible not just amongst the people of god but we see it on the ship When Jonah is being thrown off the ship, right? The the sailors cast lots to figure out where the problem's coming from. And who is casting lots for Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross? The Roman soldiers. So again, it was common. The difference between what God is promising to do for Israel and what is happening with the other nations is that the outcome is not random. It is a belief that in God's sovereign purposes, in His providential care of all things, it includes even those things which seem random. So as you come unto God, if you cast lots, the sovereign will of God would be revealed through what appeared to be a random outcome. Again, this is the only time in the New Testament That this happens, and there is no place that says that the people of God are encouraged to do this. What we see in Acts here, though, is a change from Old Testament principles to New Testament. How do you discern the will of God? They're still waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, so they don't have that that we have today. It would come in, in about two days, and so they fall back onto the only way that they know. But it doesn't become a New Testament principle. As soon as the Holy Spirit comes and is available to all and indwells us all, in all, God speaks to us individually through our conscience to every believer. And we see that developed as we're going to, through the book of Acts. We see it at the, the beginning of, of Acts chapter six when they start uh, choosing deacons. But most demonstratively, when we come to Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem co- uh, Council, we see something coming together called consensus leadership. Now, consensus leadership is not a uh, uh, casting of lots or, or majority win. Let's take a poll, and if 50% of us say we're going to do that, we're going to do that. That's not consensus leadership. Consensus leadership is the belief that the Holy Spirit leads the group of people through a consensus or general agreement. It's an uncoerced unanimity or agreement in spirit that comes from discussion, it comes from godly wisdom, it comes from prayer. So a question we need to ask ourselves coming out of this is how are we going to, as a church, seek and discern the will of God? Now, one of the things that we have just done is that we have made a statement on this very thing in our philosophy of ministry. You may think, well, philosophy of ministry, what an awkward sounding document, you know, who wants to read through all that theology? It says very much this thing. We as leadership at every level are going to commit ourselves to consensus leadership. So as we come together, we have two or three different options. We're going to Reason scripture. We're going to pray. And if someone has a dissenting argument or a dissenting voice, we're going to say, Well, how stuck are you to that? Are you, uh, is your conscience free to, to allow this to happen? And if it's not, then we as a leadership need to step back and reevaluate, pray, and discuss it again. So that is a process that i think we have been doing in part before but now it's very explicit in how we're going to move ahead as leadership consensus leadership is not voting and the majority wins it's seeking a unanimity of minds saying the holy spirit is bringing us to one agreement here despite whatever questions and challenges It's the holy spirit guiding us and here's here's the important thing though from from these verses The early church, without the presence of the Holy Spirit there in them to to guide them, is seeking to know the will of God, is deciding what is God asking us, so they are seeking decision-making. The early church, they they stood at the crossroads, didn't they, of this Old Testament redemptive plan of the sacrificial system and the priests and, and now in Jesus Christ and just let me think about this it's kind of aside they were praying they were praying of one heart and mind where were the priests they were all priests the sacrificial system in terms of having to have a priest mediate was gone they as one family went straight to god But they as one family were also coming together now and say, in our decision making, as we move forward, as we wait upon the Holy Spirit, what are we going to do to replace Judas? Well, Holy Spirit, we need you to tell us what the will of God is. And so they cast lots. So the casting of lots here shows their desire, their steadfast belief in God's sovereignty even over the randomness. It shows a commitment and a dependency on the Holy Spirit. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come because they were going to be empowered. But even while they were waiting, they were saying, Lord, we're dependent on your Spirit to tell us what you want. You're the one who can reveal the will of God. That's a thread I think goes right back to the start of verse 12. Again, they were of one heart or one mind. How does that one heart and one mind come together as a family of God? It comes together by the Spirit of God. We see it, I think, as Peter interpreting Psalm 69 and even Psalm 109 because he says very specifically, it is the Spirit who directed David to say those things and to record them. It is the Spirit who gave Peter the right understanding, the interpretation of those scriptures to apply it to their context. And it is the Holy Spirit who has revealed God's will on who should replace Judas. So right from the very beginning, we have this this theology or practical reality that we must be people who are led and dependent on the Holy Spirit. Even in this earliest snapshot, we see a dependence on the Holy Spirit. And again, I think that's something we have to ask ourselves. Uh, we live in a culture that says, you know, grab it and run with it. You're a self-made man. You're a self-made woman. Yeah, you can have your faith, but <clears throat> you can do and become anything you want to be. The question we need to ask ourselves, are we going to be a church that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit? Now, again, in our philosophy of ministry, we have added a paragraph one that probably wasn't obvious at the very beginning when we started but I, I want to read this to you because if this is not down at the beginning and we believe this we're spinning our wheels the words of jesus in john fifteen five remain true today apart from me you can do nothing recognizing that it is God who works in us both to will and to work His good pleasure as we walk in the Spirit, we, that is the church, collectively, we will labor to encourage an ever-deepening reliance on the Holy Spirit's leading and accordance with God's will in all aspects of life and ministry. As believers, we are blessed that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, And without His supernatural leading and empowering, anything that we may attempt for God will fall short of the mark because we will have done it in our own understanding and strength. It is our desire, that is our church's desire, that the Holy Spirit take preeminence in the planning and the implementation of everything we do as a church. That's a pretty big, weighty statement. But it must be one of the priorities we set right from the beginning. Because if we are not being led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, this is all going to be a house of cards that comes down for nothing. It, It may be a little aspirational, we're not there yet, but you know where our heart is. I can't help but think about this this fledgling church in in its weakness and its humbleness they understood that god had given them this wonderful role in redemptive history that they were going to be witnesses of the resurrection of christ and, and that there were going to be miracles happening that they were going to go forth people were going to be saved they understood that scripture was being fulfilled before them miracles and wonders that for hundreds of years, the people of God have been waiting for, Israel had been waiting for, are now coming to be. The Christ had come. The Lord Jesus has come. The King of Israel has come. He has now gone up into glory. And there is a new family of God. It is all who, those by faith, come unto Jesus Christ. And that is the Spirit who will lead them. They had a great expectation of faith, but they had an expectation of faith that was tempered by obedience to the words of, God, of Christ. And it was a, an expectation of faith that, that issued forth naturally, it just welled up in an, expect, an expectant prayer life as a body. In the coming weeks, we're, we're going to see Chances of, of being able to get together and we're even kind of tentatively trying to get together a plan where as a church We can have a time of a barbecue. I can see that day And we're going to have a wonderful time aren't we where masks are going to be gone We're going to be talking with each other Hopefully, I'll be able to preach outside, but the reality is is, is you know what's going to happen? There are going to be so many pictures taken that day Everyone is going to want to get a snapshot with everyone else We've seen a snapshot of the early church, that sepia, gray-brown, green-brown tones. If we were to take a picture of our church today, how would it match up with the principles that we see that come from Scripture? Where are we in our understanding of God's calling to be missional, in our understanding and obedience and expectant prayer that God will use us? I don't know, but the wonderful reality is we can still write that history yet to come. We can commit ourselves, even this morning, and say, we're going to renew corporate prayer. We're going to redouble our efforts in obedience and understand what God has called us to do in terms of reaching the nations for Christ. I pray that that's our desire.